Welcome to Future Foodcast. I'm Pam Line Miller, your host. Future Foodcast is a community of industry experts, food technologists, and food enthusiasts talking all about the future of food. We're sponsored by Farm to Plate, a brainchild of Paramount Software Solutions. Farm to Plate is a software company committed to creating tomorrow's food business ecosystem today. And with our episode today, I we're going to dive into a niche in the food business that you might not really be aware of with our guest. He is the founder and president of Embassy Ingredients, Martino Brambilla. Martino, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Pam. I'm very excited to be on your podcast and uh, discuss with you the future of food and share my story. Yeah, we are happy to have you as well. And we, I, the audience doesn't know about your story, but why don't we start there? How did you even get Embassy Agree? Tell us about your story, how the company came to be. Let's start there. Well, it's a little bit unorthodox. And by the way, can you see my hand coming to the screen? I'm Italian. So sometimes I have trouble talking without moving my hands. So uh, it's, it started when I was 15. Uh, my dad actually pulled me out of grade 11 in school to start up a family business between myself, my brother himself. It was mostly distribution of selling to hotels and restaurants, spaghetti sauce, olive oil, and so on. But my dad had a hobby in one of the offices. We were just uh, diluting flavors we were bringing in from Italy in simple syrup and then going up and down the street to these small Italian bakeries, selling them these Italian flavors. Now, after about two years, the company went bankrupt. My brother went into directing television commercials, and now he does video art. So he's on the artistic side of the family. Uh, I was 17 years old. Everybody had left, and I just took over the flavor part of the business. It was $5,000 a year in sales. Everything else was shut down, and I was the last man standing, literally. I was the only employee. We had no employees. I moved into a 450-square-foot small building where I could start trying to build it and figure out what to do. Now, remember, at that point, just didn't really finish high school. I tried to finish through correspondence. So back then, there was no internet. I would do my homework with pen and paper, send it into a teacher, get it back, and so on, and slowly learn how to run a business by doing it, uh, working 365 days a year, literally. I made more money with my newspaper route that I quit than running the business for the first five years. But it, oh it taught me determination. Well, determination, and I'm sure there's a long list of other things that you learned, but $5,000 a year in business is, is not anything at all in business. So really, you were at ground zero is what you're saying. Basically, yes. And at that point, we only did the flavors. From then, there was a mixed company that shut down in Canada that was trying to break in from Europe. And when they went under, we bought all their equipment and got into bakery mixes and ingredients. And that's how we got into the dry side. We became a distributor for the world's largest flavor company. So we start, stopped bringing in flavors in from Italy. We became a distributor for Givaudan at one point for, about a de- for almost 20 years. We were a distributor for them. Okay. And as we were growing, we started hiring flavors and making our own flavors also. So over the years, we migrated and started becoming a little bit more of a manufacturer. And and remember, I did this just learning by doing. And at that point, we really didn't have a business model. We just went after every dollar we can get by going after the dollar. Uh, At at one point, I was interviewed by a university because they knew my background and I had to talk to their 
the, the university kids that were about to graduate. And the one thing that I thought about it, how we got to the point where we were able to get to a critical mass is that you just don't give up. You get all these hurdles. There was one attribute in my personality that made us survive and actually grow as a business. It's just not giving up and always finding a solution. So uh -huh. that, that, that a lot of that perseverance. Now, at one point, we got to a size, and it was around 2004. We moved into a new facility. The business, at that point, I don't mind mentioning it, it was about $8 million in sales. Oh. And so it was still quite small, but I couldn't figure out how to make it bigger. And sheer hard work wasn't going to get me into, like, there's a delineation between having a job and having a company. At that point, I had a job. I didn't really have a company. So I went back to school. I enrolled myself in a course at Harvard where you have to own a business to enroll in this course. And it's three weeks every year, over three years. One of the best decisions in my life that I ever did. I took that course over three years, learned how to put together a business model, learned what it takes to actually develop a strategy and execute the strategy for a business. We exited all the distribution that we had at that point, uh, revamped the whole business model into what we basically are still following today. The only problem is we did that in 2008. And for the, those of you um, listening to the podcast that are old enough, know that 2008 was not a great year. So we gave up 60% of our revenue at the same time that the world going, was going through a crisis. Created a little bit of stress in my in my life. We managed to actually increase sales while going through that. And I learned with the business model that the narrower the focus, the greater the increase in sales. Because the business model that we do today, instead of selling like for the flavor side, instead of trying to sell to everyone, we said, well, we're we're best at bakery. So let's get rid of all our customers that are not bakery. And let's just go after the bakery customers. 98, like about 80% of all sales go to beverages when it comes to the flavor industry. Bakery represents 2%. So most multinationals will neglect a 2% market share of any industry. Sure. And because of our bakery ingredient side, we were experts at it. Right. So that, well, and you couldn't have known that when you took over that failed bakery all those years ago, you know, that manufacturing area for all the ingredients that, that that would be the niche market that you ended up combining your flavors with the expertise there. Right. And so kudos to you for, first of all, 5,000 to 8 million. I said, that sounded pretty good to me. And then you were like, but I couldn't figure out how to make it bigger. A lot of people would be very excited about that. But your point was that was just really sheer determination and you had bought yourself a really, you know, time-consuming job. You hadn't figured out how to scale it. And mm -hmm. so going back to school helped you figure out how to scale it. And what I'm hearing is niching it down helped you scale it bigger. I mean, narrowing your market focus helped you to be the expert in that business and to go ahead and niche that. Absolutely. And it's sometimes counterintuitive. Sometimes people yes. think to grow, you have to add more product lines, uh, create new products, and, and do all this expansion. Sometimes the secret of growing is actually narrowing your focus because you're trying to do too many things to begin with yeah, and execute a lot better at what you do well and then develop that market. Now, when you do that, though, you need to analyze the market and make sure that the size of the market that you're going to target has enough room to let you do the growth of what you're planning to do. So if I narrow my focus to a market that's only, let's say, $100 million, 
and I want to become a $50 million company, well, I'm never going to get there in a market that small. But if the market's still worth billions of dollars and I can extrapolate the market share I want, then that'll give me the growth that I would like. Yeah. Well, good business advice for maybe some food entrepreneurs that are listening to this podcast. And I know we have quite a few that we've had on, and I know a lot of them are listeners. So thanks for sharing your wisdom at that. Uh, So now you focus in on flavors in the dry ingredients, like in bakery ingredients. What makes them different from beverage flavors, for example? So when you develop flavors for the baking industry... You have to make them so that they're bake stable. Like so the bakery is going to be using them in their dough or their batter, depending if it's a bread product or if it's a cake product. They're going to bake it so it gets exposed to heat, so it can't be volatile or else there's nothing left in the bake product. Then the typical customer that we have will also freeze the product for six months, uh, up to nine months. Then it goes to the uh, grocery store. Now, in the best case scenario, the product just gets thawed out and it gets on the shelf and it has to have another eight days of shelf life or, or sometimes a little bit longer. But in another scenario that we work in, the product gets rebaked because it's only baked partially the first time. So it's getting heated, it's getting frozen, and then it's getting reheated again. So if you don't wow. develop the flavor a certain way, there's nothing left at the end. Yeah, lots of variables there and different iterations of the product. So you have to be able to sustain all the way through all of that. Oh, absolutely. And remember, we're also working on the ingredient side. So sometimes the ingredients also help retain the flavor, give you the mouthfeel. And depending on the mouthfeel of the product, you adapt the flavor to hit your tongue in a certain way based on the texture of the product that you're putting it in. So the flavor that we'll put in a bagel is going to be different than the flavor that we put in a muffin because it hits your tongue in a different way. And the way you taste it is different. Huh, I never even thought about that. But you know, that's why I'm not like a flavor chemist in the bakery area, right? I wouldn't have even realized that you you, you guys are the special. No, no, we, and we have fun doing all these things here, because we're always a year ahead of what you see on the grocery store shelf, or what you'll see at Starbucks or Dunkin Donuts, and so on. We're always one year ahead, because that's the typical sales cycles for one of our customers. So we present or we start working on a development project with them. One year later, it makes it to market. And it's great seeing all the reiterations. And the nice thing about the flavor industry, but there are some bad flavors. Like there's, there's some things you can do, but there's also 50 ways of making a great strawberry flavor that are all just as good. And it all depends on who is tasting it and what your preference is. So there's no best flavor in many cases. You could have 50 reiterations and they're all just as great, but the way that you imagine a strawberry to be in a muffin could be completely different than your friend across the table and what they're looking for. Right. So do you present options to your customers then and they get to choose what they want to represent? Is that how that works? Like customers come to you for... Flavors, or do you present flavors outward? Like, is it a push or a pull? Are they? It's both. Okay. Uh, I'd say 25 to 30% of our business is we present the concept that wasn't even requested. And then we start executing on that. And then a large part of our business, another part of our business is the client will request a certain flavor they have on their development. We sometimes even develop the whole product for them because we also supply the ingredients to make it. 
Uh, then another part of our business sometimes is matching. So we will be matching a competitor's product uh, and then substituting what they're currently purchasing. So we have those maybe three segments of getting to market. Okay. Well, and you mentioned just a little bit ago about being a year ahead of what consumers are buying out there in the marketplace and consumer trends are, you know, something we like to cover here at the Future Foodcast. How do you figure out what next year is going to bring? How how are you a year ahead? Well, it's a combination of what we believe in is if you work on data, on sales data, every product has a sales curve. So if you look at the typical sales cycle as one year, and this is just our personal philosophy as a company being entrepreneurial and fast to market. If I'm looking at, let's say, cheese bagels are the hottest selling item right now. Well, if they're hottest selling, that means they've already reaching their peak. And then if it takes a year to launch them, they might be over their peak. So what we look at sometimes is what social media is saying to hit it at the beginning of the curve, because we want to get our customers in while the sales are still trending up if we present something, rather than sales have peaked already. And now a year later, they're getting it already at a mature market level that might be trending down, uh, depending on the sustainability of that flavor trend. Like some flavor trends will last 10 years, so it doesn't really matter. But there's some flavor trends that will last one year. And if you get in there late, you're guaranteed to lose money because you're getting in already when the market is saturated and people are migrating to the new flavor already. Yeah, right. You're not going to recoup your investment. You don't have enough time at, at, at market. Yeah, that makes sense if you hit it on the back end. Yes. Wow. And, 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 and flavor trends are very quick now with social media. One celebrity posts one thing that they ate at a small bakery in LA and they loved it. And we will get 50 phone calls the next day about people wanting that flavor. It, it's it's like, that's the amount of market research that is done. <laughs> Zero. That might be the cheapest way to go, but it might not be for the best marketing decision or sales decision, right? Because who knows, one person's taste might might be. So, well, let's move on and talk about another area because you um, have a lot of certifying that needs to happen in the bakery industry too. I think in food safety, you manufacture things and do you have certain regulations or requirements or how do you figure out what you need to, to do there? Well, that's something that the industry has changed a lot. Like when I first started the company, it was a one page spec sheet and that's all the customer ever needed. Food safety was there, but I would go into the like large multinationals and people would be smoking in the factory on the line. Oh, you're kidding. When I was younger, I would go into the largest bakeries in the States and people would be on the line smoking. That, which is something that would be unfathomable now. So what's happening in the food industry, there's something called the Global Food Safety Initiative. And under that, there's certain certifications that you can get so that you can avoid. And for our customers, not everybody has to come in to audit you now because there's these certifying bodies that have a lot of um, criteria and they make sure that everything is done correctly. So we chose BRC, uh, which is one of the bodies under the GFSI uh, umbrella. And we've been lucky. Like, we put a lot of effort in food safety. We we received their highest rating four years in a row now. Oh, congratulations. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. So your products are. Now, would we see products branded? We we wouldn't see your company name on products, would we? Embassy and Greek. I mean, you you supply other manufacturers with your 
formulas, ingredients, flavors, right? You don't have any branded products on your own? No, there's nothing branded on the store shelves. Mm -hmm. Although if you're eating a muffin or a bagel uh, anywhere in Canada or the U.S. and into Central America, mostly Canada and the U.S., during the week, it's likely that some of my product will be coming into those uh, items. We have, we have a fair market share in a lot of the launches, whether it's the quick service restaurants uh, or the supermarkets or a little bit less in the sit-down restaurants, but the QSRs and the supermarkets were very strong in. Yeah, good to know. That is really good to know. And uh, because I love your, I love the the care you put into making a couple different things. You know, if it's a bagel or a muffin, you know, making them taste the same, or if it's a product that has to go through all these temperature variations, you know, just the the analysis that has to go into getting quality on the consumer end of that product. You know, we really care about that, and and we care about what's what's in our products. I mean, that's, um, I'm sure you've seen that trend where you are too. Consumers want to know what's in their, their things and you're, you're selling a lot of ingredients. So you want people to know what's in there. Well, absolutely. So at the end of the day, we, we work in an indulgent, uh, industry. So we're, we're trying to satisfy an indulgence. Now I eat and taste our products every day. And I don't think of an extra pound on me that I shouldn't have. So that, but the thing is that everybody's going to be wanting some indulgences. What we believe in, though, you don't have to make the ingredient declaration a book. Uh, you're, you're, it's never going to be as uh, healthy as eating broccoli when you eat a muffin. But on the other hand, we can make it so that it's less sugars, less bad fats. It's not. And you can still. But the main thing is that it still has to taste great. The, the big mistake a lot of launches have done and I've seen them fail is where they try to make it a health item, but it's never really healthy, but it also tastes bad. Yeah. No. Then at that taste point, you might as well eat your carrot sticks. Right. No, taste is really important. I agree yeah. with you on that. Taste is really important. At the end, it's still a dessert. Yeah. And it can be done in a much healthier way. But if you go too far down the spectrum and it doesn't taste any good, then you don't want the dessert anymore. That's true. And maybe that is a new diet idea, Martino, we could put out there that you can eat all the cakes and pies you want, but they're not going to taste very good. And that would turn your body off to that. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I did want to comment that for the business that you are, have founded and have been in all this time that you are not overweight at all. And I imagine you eat great, great products, nice, sweet products all the time. So kudos to you. You've got the right metabolism for this kind of business. Um, but one other question that I wanted to ask you was about, you know, over the pandemic and, and you talked about 2008, but really we had more recent crises going on and uh, there were a lot of food companies and ingredient companies like yourself had trouble getting their source ingredients to what they were actually making. Did you have that challenge as well? Well, I'll even correct the terminology. It's not had, it's still happening. Okay. <laughs> and it's not getting any better next year. So for a lot of your customers already seeing articles, there's going to be a lot of food inflation again next year. And there's still shortage of supply going into 2023 and probably even further out than that. Uh, wow. There's been a lot of shift on what's grown. There's been a lot of, because of global warming, there's been a lot of crop damage. Sometimes the crops are not as abundant as they were before. The war in Ukraine, well, great 
area for growing grains. That's been taken partially off the market. Also, Russia and Ukraine were the biggest producers of fertilizer in the world. So now when there's less fertilizer, all the crops are yielding less all over the world because you have less fertilizer to work with. I hadn't heard that part before. That affects okay. crops everywhere. Wow. So, okay. So, and, all, and because of the shortage of labor, all factories are running at capacity right now. So there's a shortage everywhere you look. So I've never experienced in my life, like we've always tried to grow our business, always very entrepreneurial, aggressive growth path. I've never thought that we would spend two years of my of my life in the last two years turning down more business than we would and not accepting any new business. So we've been able to grow through refocusing and so on and grow with existing customers and protecting them. But neither myself or my competitors have the ingredients to grab new clients and grow with new clients. Wow. So that's a sourcing problem that is kind of stinting business goals. Oh, oh, absolutely. So, and that's one dilemma about launching new products. So we can launch new flavors, but we try to launch them with an existing product because even flavors have supply chain issues, but less so than the agricultural products. Okay. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's almost like a whack-a-mole game that we're playing every day because we bring in over 1,500 SKUs to make about 800 SKUs of products. Wow. And every day there's one more product on supply problems. And unless I have all 30 ingredients to make that flavor, I can't make the flavor even if one is missing. Right. So a matter of how do you go around the problems on a, every single day, new ones happen. It, it's, it is still going to be happening into next year. So all food companies have the same issue, no matter where they are in the world, not just North America. And it's only going to get worse now with the gas crisis in Europe, because a lot of producers that require energy in Europe now are scaling back some of their production. Okay. Well, it, yeah, it really is a global impact. And because everything's connected, right? You know, from the from the very sourcing to get getting product to the end consumer, all the things that take place in between. So thanks for um, bringing all the challenges to light for us, Martino. That's, I mean, I'm I'm kind of laughing, but it's a nervous laugh because it's really not funny because all of us are affected and um, sounds like we'll be affected moving into 2023, at least in this category of products. Uh, well, what is there that you have that's positive, forward-thinking, maybe some new innovation going on at Embassy Ingredients or um, a good thought that you'd like to share with our audience before we go today? Okay, well, you know what? Also, like, even though there's the negative side of the supply chain, especially as an entrepreneurial company, it, even though there's a challenge, in change, there's always opportunities. How do you solve that challenge now better than your competition and help the consumer, help your customers and help them grow and find ways to working around? So we're doing a lot more of that now. So we've been able to more than double in size as a company during COVID because even though there have been challenges, We've been able to think completely outside the box. And in some ways, that's also a lot of fun and going throw all the plans out the window and say, how do we do this differently how, and brainstorm in a boardroom and how do we get this fixed? And a lot of the trends that we're seeing with consumers is because of all these things that are happening in the world is there's a lot of nostalgia now. So we're launching things like mac and cheese flavors, things that you grew up with as a child, like 
There's a lot of interest in some things that we're promoting, uh, creamsicles uh, that a lot of people have had as a kid. So sometimes we're reaching back in, into products that even this generation hasn't had, but their parents had. And the Gen Xs and the Gen Zs are actually eating those products because they heard about them in the past. So there's a lot of this nostalgia stuff that's coming out. And what we're also having a lot of fun in because sometimes how do we redirect our efforts? So we have some extra resources now because there's a shortage of supply. Now, I don't know if you know, but Toronto, I'm based in Toronto in Canada, and we finally had Michelin come to us and certify 12 restaurants with Michelin stars on our first time around. So that, that was, the city was very happy. Yes, congratulations, Toronto. Yeah, so we did, we did really well. But what we're doing in next year, like in January, we have some of the Michelin star chefs coming to our lab and we're working with them and showing them how the other side of the world works in the industry and creating new flavors with them. So we're trying to use this as an opportunity now. How can people now that do fine dining and we'll do the $300 plated dessert? How, the, how can their imagination work in the mass market? How, how can we work with them and create new flavors and new themes and so on? So we're, we're really thinking of doing things that we've never done before. Like we've never gone into the fine dining sector like that. And what can we do on creating new imaginative things that then a year later, you might see on a store shelf and something going, wow, that's really cool. I've never tried that before. Like that's, that's what we like to do. Like having the passion in the food. And there's nothing that we like better as a company and my R&D staff loves is when they see our product now on the shelf selling and they see blog posts of people that actually love eating it, whether it's on TikTok or whatever. And they're saying, oh, I tried this new product and it tastes great. And knowing that we developed the flavor profile for that. And, and we help give that experience to that person that had that passionate reaction to I love this product and I'm so happy it's here. Yeah, that that has got to be the reason you exist, right? To see the clients and customers that eat the the results of your flavors and the, the ingredients that go into those products, just love them. And, and now with social media, you can actually see that. Congratulations, by the way, on doubling over COVID that's a whole different podcast because that I haven't heard that at all in the in the food industry. And so you really did kind of turn the apple cart upside down and just start all over. Let's throw out all those plans and, you know, how can we maximize what we're doing here and serve our customers and clients best? Uh, so that's con congratulations. Oh, thank you. And it was the same theory that we did back uh, when I with a business model about focusing on less is that we cut off a lot of our product lines. We concentrated on fewer products, fewer customers, and that increased our sales. Again, sometimes the concept of less and more, and it does really work in real life, even though, like I said, it's counterintuitive. What those professors say about those business models, and I remember my favorite professor from Harvard was my strategy professor. All these business people would come up with all these strategies, and she would turn them all down. Because she would ask them one question, what are you giving up? And if you're not giving up something, there is no strategy. Well, good for any um, business owners out there to take forward the, uh, the whole less is more, just narrowing your product lines. And I have seen that in some restaurants where they have narrowed their menu some, just taking advantage of the higher volume hmm. uh, menu items that were getting ordered more and more. So that's 
kind of the concept you're talking about with your business that you took advantage of. Wow. That's really great. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, Martino. I, I've just had a great time having you on the podcast and learned so much about your business. And thank you for sharing your really, really encouraging story for anyone out there with some determination who wants to do whatever it is they want to do. The determination factor obviously is a winner, as you've shown. Thank you very much, Pam. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 